deep in our bones lies an intuition that we arrive here carrying a bundle of gifts to offer to the community. Over time, these gifts are meant to be seen, developed, and called into the village at times of need. To feel valued for the gifts with which we are born affirms our worth and dignity. In a sense, it is a form of spiritual employment. Simply being who we are confirms our place in the village. That is one of the fundamental understandings about the gift, about our gift. We can only offer them by being ourselves fully. Gifts are a consequence of authenticity. When we are being true to our natures, the gifts can emerge. That's a quote from my guest today, Francis Weller, who I have had on the show before, and I have the honor of speaking with again. This is a conversation that Francis and I had a few, I guess a couple months back. I produced a series called The Wisdom of Elders. Uh, it was just free for anyone that wanted to take part. And I interviewed four men from different walks of life and uh, men that I considered to be wisdom keepers, elders within various communities around North America. And Francis was one of the conversations. And in this conversation, we talk about many things. This admittedly is one of the few conversations that I will be going back to listen to myself because during the conversation, I remember being awestruck. I remember sitting through this conversation as if I was sitting by a fire receiving a kind of uh, medicinal truth in word form that I desperately need to hear, that I feel like many people need to hear. So in this conversation, we talk about initiation. We talk about what culture looks like when initiation is vacant and, and deceased and, and, and dying. Uh, we talk about the role of elders, elders in our community, in our society. We talk about the times, the troubled times that we are facing as a uh, species as human beings. We talk about the role of men within that uh, conflict, within that turmoil, and what we can do to navigate these these waters in this territory. And we talk about many other things. We talk about archetypes and uh, the chaos that we're experiencing, what's brought it about, how grief fits into that, uh, relationships. And so there's a, there's a number of things that we dive into, but where we, where we begin is really about initiation. And that's a very important conversation, in my opinion. So without any further delay and, uh, and adieu, I, I want to bring Francis on. I just want to say before I do that, um, so I guess one more delay. I really would be encouraged if you would share this episode. I feel like this is the type of conversation that more people need to tune into and hear. And if you feel that way, if you listen to a few minutes and, and you really you know, get like, hey, this is something that I want more people to be a part of or to witness or to hear, then please do share this podcast episode. We uh, have ranked in the top 100 in uh, America and in the top 50 in Canada. Uh, for the past few months, and that's largely due to you and your your listenership and you tuning in, you sharing the show. And so I really appreciate that. I really appreciate each and every single one of you, whether you are new to the show or whether you've been tuning in uh, since the very beginning. I'm always honored for the people that have been here since the beginning. So please do share the show. And if you have a moment and you haven't uh, rated the podcast on whatever platform you tune into us on, on uh, you know, Apple, 
uh, or on Spotify uh, or whatever platform you tune into us on, please do go and do that. It goes a long way uh, for ranking purposes to get us into the ears and onto the phones of other people. So, all right, delay over. Please welcome Mr. Francis Weller. How are you doing today? How are things going? Mostly good. Mostly good. It's been uh, thankfully a little bit moister in our in our air. We've had fog back in a little bit, which during fire season that's that's a godsend. So we're mm. very grateful for fog and moments of coolness and comfort. What's your experience been like over the last year and a half as we've entered into you know the pandemic and the chaos that sort of ensued in that because as a mental health practitioner how has that affected you how has it affected your work because for for me and what i've seen my wife's a marriage and family therapist as well i mean both of our businesses have just been sort of inundated and i feel like the conversation that's maybe not being had to the fullest of its degree is the one around mental health and the impacts of isolation and and just the, the sort of shift in culture. So I was just curious to see how that's impacted you and, and your work. And has it shifted at all? The the difference was obviously uh, transitional from in-person ritual time around the grief work and some of the other ritual programs I off to more online. Trying to decipher the code around how do you create intimacy and connection on a, on a flat platform. So... Just working out those dynamics and learning learning how to do that. Psychically, I think there's been a real shift in people's experience, at least people I'm exposed to, of the fantasy of separation. When you have a collected experience like we're having, the fiction of individualism begins to wobble. In the sense that I'm somehow separate and, and unique, that begins to also kind of crack, which to me is actually a hopeful thing that we can begin to reimagine our entanglement with one another and with the world. And that we're not sensing our sense or reinforcing our identities as, as so separate and so insular, but actually more communal. That the self is actually a communal presence, not an not a entirely interior experience. So mm. that's one of the hopeful signs I'm seeing of, of this pandemic. Yeah, beautiful. Well, well said. Thank you for that. Yeah. All right. Well, where do we begin <laughs> in this in this wonderful conversation? I'm always I'm always sort of remiss to to know where to start in some of these grand conversations around things like initiation, things like grief, you know, looking at rituals within our within our culture. But I think where where I really wanted to start was looking at the purpose and function from your perspective that initiation plays within our culture. And also, second to that, kind of curious to get your take on, do you feel like some of what we're experiencing in this time of chaos, in this time of sort of collapse and, and, and breakdown, do you feel like some of that is a byproduct of failed initiation or a lack of initiation within our culture? I think the first part of your question was, what is the role of relationship in this culture? Well, there is none. We rarely have any kind of formal acknowledgement of transitions, of thresholds that that we develop through over the course of a lifetime. And in traditional cultures, there are multiple initiatory events, not just the singular one in, at adolescence into some kind of passing 
process into adulthood, but there are multiple initiations in a, in a lifetime. And currently, it's very difficult to find any place within North American culture where that is honored. That being said, initiation is not optional. You can't bypass the process of initiation. That's so psyche, soul, on its own, takes us to the thresholds of change over and over again in our lifetime. Whether we acknowledge that or not, that's a different question. Yeah, I wanted to ask why. Why is it that we can't bypass initiation? Well, there's never been any free pass from adolescence into adulthood. That requires a cooking. It requires some kind of ordeal that tempers the individual from a sense of uh, personal fixation to communal attention. Remember that the role of initiation was never meant for me. It was never geared towards the individual. It was an act of sacrifice on behalf of the greater good to which you are now holding allegiance. That was the role of initiation. It wasn't to make us better people. It wasn't to increase my pedigree or my CV. It wasn't about self-improvement. It had nothing to do with it. It didn't give it. I don't know if I could swear on your show. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're okay there. <laughs> they didn't give a shit about your personal growth. What they cared about was ripening you so that you could be a presence that would help to sustain the viability of a living culture. So there's this beautiful symmetry you see in traditional cultures between strong individuals and strong community. It takes a strong community to cultivate a strong individual. It takes strong individuals to, to maintain a strong community. And that symmetry was deepened and ripened through the process of initiation. And that was the purpose of initiation. So when you ask that second part of the question, are we in the condition we're in, in part because of the failure of initiation? Absolutely, absolutely so. We have never gotten beyond the fixation of the individual. So we are kind of consuming ourselves to death. We are entitling ourselves to death. What initiation moves is from entitlement to entanglement from rights to responsibilities. We have forgotten that we are entangled and that we are responsible for the communal well-being. And the failure to attend to the communal leaves us in the condition we're in, which is basically pillaging the planet for personal gain and for personal comfort. So yeah, the absence of initiation and, that, and the absence of the processes that would engender a larger allegiance this is the condition we're in. Now, when you look at traditional cultures, I don't want to idealize them by any stretch of the imagination, but when you look at the cultures that are fighting on behalf of water protection or land protection, they are the ones where those practices are still relatively intact. Why do these traditional cultures fight against fracking or oil industries? Because what initiation also does is it weds your individual psyche to the psyche of the land. So when that land is being threatened, you are being threatened. The identities fuse. So it's not some kind of altruistic idea that I'm going to protect the land because I should, or it's a moral obligation. No, your assault on the land is, a, is an assault on my body, my body and the body of the land. There's no separation. Initiation weds you to the place. Initiation always occurs in place. It's not an abstraction. It's not an, an ideal of space but a place. So I get a little passionate about these things. <laughs> that's good. That's good. No, that's, that's wonderful. 
I mean, I, you know, as I listened to you, a few things really kind of stood out to me about the function of initiation, specifically that idea that it weds us to the land, that we, that we are connected to the nature around us and see it as an extension of us rather than something that we get to objectify. And I'm curious about how does that connection, that relationship emerge out of initiation? Traditionally, the process of initiation would be in kind of taking the initiate through a series of ritual practices, ritual processes that would take them to the threshold of death. There's always a relationship to death in any true initiatory process. Without that, nothing kind of deconstructs the identity. So prior to initiation, I might be really kind of encompassed within my own psychic field, maybe into my family field. What initiation does through the processes of heat and, and pressure is, is kind of break the psyche open so that our, our fidelity and our sense of fealty now is also part of the woods, part of the watershed, part of the animals, part of the galaxies whirling. You become cosmically entangled through that process. What we're experiencing right now is what I call rough initiation. Rough initiation is a completely uncontained process. I call initiation a contained encounter with death. And I call rough initiation an uncontained encounter with death. We're still confronting the same dynamics. We're still confronting death, but without the benefits of community, ritual, the sacred ancestors, spaciousness, and place. Those elemental ingredients are what help contain the process of initiation. So what we encounter primarily through trauma, through crisis that we're having right now of climate catastrophe, cultural collapse, we're still under an encounter with death, but in an uncontained way. And whereas a contained encounter breaks us open to the widest aperture of identity, trauma and rough initiation tends to collapse us down into the smallest hub of identity. And you're down, now brought down into a singularity, and you basically posture yourself against the world. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it, makes, it makes complete sense. And it's interesting because what I hear you kind of pointing to and alluding to is that trauma, which is, I would say, more pervasive than we likely give credit to, <laughs> right? The amount of abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, you know, the having land taken away from entire people, et cetera. I mean, the list could just go on and on, is something that it seems like culturally we have forgotten how to navigate through, metabolize, and haven't even given credence to the act of doing that, right? Haven't even given validity to that being an important thing. So where did we lose the tether to the capacity to grieve to connect with the importance of being able to metabolize and, and break down the, the, the heavy weight of, of trauma and, and abuse. Well, we need a long history lesson for that one. <laughs> but we, we see this kind of uh, dissolving of communal mind and cohesive identification and the arising of our ideologies of individualism. Again, this is primarily white Western culture, who unfortunately tend to have a lot of the power right now. So the more you rely upon individualistic strategies for survival, the less opportunity you are granted 
to really metabolize trauma or grief, you're you're kind of in a sense sentenced to solitary confinement. And within that worldview, there is nothing available to you for the sake of resolution or being able to move the grief forward, the trauma to resolve the trauma. They did a very interesting study with uh, Native American soldiers coming back from Afghanistan. They were all diagnosed with PTSD. And they put them through traditional cultural, I mean, their current psychological modalities of uh, dealing with, with PTSD. And they had about a 40% recovery rate. Not great. And they thought, well, why don't we try something different? Let's put them back into sweat lodges, pipe ceremonies, and vision quests. And lo and behold, the recovery rate went up to between 80 and 90%. Now, what happened there? What trauma does is it tears us out of cosmological coat of belonging. We are severed from a sense of cohesiveness and participation in a wider sense of identity. What ritual and community and the sacred do is stitch the tears in that coat of belonging. And we come back into a sense of participation and intimacy with the larger life. Well, then they thought, well, this is just, maybe it's a cultural factor. Then they took non-Native soldiers and put them through the same process and the same thing happened. It's like when we do grief rituals. Very frequently, someone at the end of the ritual would say something like, you know, I've never done anything like this before in my life. But it felt oddly familiar. So it's echoing some deep ancestral strand that this is actually how we were shaped as human beings. Trauma, grief, loss, suffering were always meant to be communal. And only in the latest wisp of a moment that we relied upon ourselves individually to somehow digest these and, you know, materials that require so much of a larger holding field than my own psyche. Or at best, maybe I go see a therapist, but it's still private practice. We're still going into privacy when what is being requested of us is community and cosmos. We can't do this individually anymore. Well, we never could. But that's, that's the demand right now, is that we somehow muscle our way through all of what's being presented to us. We were shaped evolutionarily to digest the traumas that happened in our watershed, in our community, in our tribal circle. So maybe someone's child died, or maybe, you know, the storm hit and the flood came, and, and we digest that over months. But every day you turn your computer on, you're being assaulted with traumatic information. And it's necessary, I mean, the information around climate catastrophe and so forth, and racial discrimination and violence, we need to see this stuff. But psychically, we're not wired for this. And so we're in a chronic state of agitation, which can, di can digress, digress into depression, into addiction, into a, anesthesia, dissociation. We're just trying to cope, again, individually with what has always been meant to be carried communally. Yeah, I thank you for that. I think that's such a potent articulation of what many people have felt. And I think if Jung was on the call with us, <laughs> he would he would probably talk about, and again, I'm, I'm speaking for him, which probably shouldn't do, but I feel like my interpretation of it is, it, you know, he would bring forward the conversation of the collective unconscious. I was just talking about this the other day, I interviewed Robert Green, and we were having a conversation about, you know, what it's like for the average person to interact online. 
And I said, you know, the, the thing that sticks out for me is that in many ways, the internet, social media is a form of externalized or a physical manifestation of the collective unconscious, that suddenly we are interacting and inundated constantly with the unconscious manifestations of people's pain, trauma, abuse, that shadows, right, that they haven't connected with. And it's all being sort of projected out onto this, you know, into this digital sphere. So I'm going to ask you a how-to question, which is, <laughs> I'm going to preface it because Stephen Jenkinson gives me a hard-ass time when I yeah, yeah, ask him yeah. how-to questions, <laughs> but <laughs> I need to anyway, which is how do we begin to face that onslaught every day? Because I think for a lot of people, they're very attuned to it, right? And our nervous systems can be hijacked quite quickly. So I would love to just get your sense of how, you know, what do people do? How can they begin to face that? Where, where do they even begin with this knowledge? Well, there'd be kind of a combination of things. One of them would be to make sure you get ample doses of beauty every day. So we have, you know, dahlias growing in our garden and blackberries that are just so ripe right now and luscious and the honeybees are just you know, buzzing every place in the garden. So beauty becomes an absolute necessity because it's part of the the thing that keeps manifesting into a call back to life. So the, the onslaught of trauma and the onslaught of, of trouble can cause us to kind of retreat and kind of insulate ourselves again by necessity because the, over, the overload of that is just too much. So what is it that pulls us back into life? Jane Tiller, one of my primary teachers, said that Beauty is the means by which the gods touch the senses, reach the heart, and attract us into life. It's the means by which the gods touch the senses, reach the heart, and attract us into life. So without beauty, what is it that attracts us into life? That's so much of the news we're getting is ugly. It's ugly news, which tends to cause a soul contraction. So it may be really strange for me to be talking about beauty, but I think it's one of the most essential things we can do. The other thing we can do is become fluid in the language of grief and sorrow and become an apprentice. I often talk about taking up an apprenticeship with sorrow because the, the amount of sorrow we're going to be asked to face in the coming years, decades, and generations is not going to decrease over time. It's going to increase. And if we are not capable of turning our face into that wind, we will also find ways to dissociate and distract and to numb. And right now we need courageous human beings who are willing to digest this grief. But that means being willing to talk about it, being willing to break the taboo and to share it with others and to gather together in circles and to weep together and hold each other and to recognize that our, our grief is actually a love affair with the earth and that our grief is an expression of the deep sorrow our soul feels for the damage being done to other human beings and being done, damage being done to salmon and to watersheds and to forests and to, you know, and to the ice flows. We're not separate from that. So our language of grief is really a language of affection. It's really our, our way of communicating devotion. What we have learned in this culture is to basically be grief-phobic. We don't go into that room. We keep that door locked and shut. And until we do, until we open that room and become fluent in that customs and those rights, 
I often say that one of our core spiritual responsibilities right now is to be a receptor site for the sorrows of the world. Because if we don't register those, those sorrows, who will? And if we don't register those sorrows, who will be then in, emboldened to respond to the sorrows of the world? That's really one of our core, core responsibilities. And between beauty and grief work, that would be my how-to kit. <laughs> yeah, just a, just a few places to start there. I think it's, you know, I, I think what you're saying is interesting because as you were talking about beauty, I couldn't help but think about the sort of very real, I can't find the right word for it, but attack comes on beauty itself. You know, we've, we've sort of created this fraudulent, Botoxed, plastic surgery version of what beauty should look like, you know, photoshopped, et cetera. I mean, it's just, you could go on, you could just go on and on and on. And, and we've lost a connection, but what I hear you talking about is beauty from a natural standpoint, beauty from a nature standpoint. Can you just speak a little bit more about the reconnection to beauty in its inherent form? Well, it's not about something being, being beautiful. It's something, beauty is really about how something affects you. Hillman talks about the old the word aesthesis. And aesthesis, that's the Greek word that where we get the word aesthetics. And, and he said aesthesis comes from the moment in which you're walking around a corner and you encounter something so beautiful, whether it's a fox or a sunset, and it takes your breath away. That's having an aesthetic arrest. So what I'm talking about is how something can affect you, something can touch you so deeply that you are moved by that exchange between the moment and your own soul. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about beauty. It's not something that we're kind of commercializing or abstracting, but something that deeply penetrates and affects your soul to the degree in which you are, you are raptured by that moment in a way that, again, creates kinship between you and that fox or you and that sunset. There's suddenly an, an intimacy between the two of you. Exchange, exchange to the encounter with beauty. It sounds... Does, it's, does that help? Yeah, it sounds almost... And please correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds something akin to recalibrating our systems to pay closer attention to moments of awe and the sublime and wonder. The first thing that came to mind is this almost makes me... I mean, it does make me emotional actually quite a bit is every morning my when we when we wake up my son is in in bed with us he's four and a half months old and every morning <laughs> i open my eyes and i look and if and if he's facing me his the way that he looks at me is it's just pure beauty it's awe it's wonder and i can't help but find myself in that in that moment with nothing else happening. And it's just the most beautiful, perfect, serene moment, you know? And, and I see those moments everywhere, you know, looking out at the lake and as we, we live right on the lake, but that was the moment that, that came into my mind. So thank you for that. Oh, exquisite example. Exquisite. Yeah. yeah. That's right on. Again, in the Greek tradition, it was beauty that engendered love. Beauty is the thing that, again, stirs the heart. And through beauty, through something touching us, we fall in love, you know. So when your son looks at you, when Code looks at you, it engenders your heart. It stirs your heart to affection, to awe and beauty and love and wonder. So it kind of ties us back into initiation. 
ties us back into the thread around where we place our attention. And when we are not feeling our sense of initiation into that adult presence, our gaze is primarily internal. Our eyes are always looking more towards how am I doing? Am I performing adequately? Am I good enough? Am I loved? What do people think of me? What initiation is meant to do is there's a threshold moment where we move from that kind of interior space to a communal space. So our gaze can fall out into the world. Robinson Jeffers says to fall in love outwards. So our, our love falls into the world, into the canyons, you know, into the creek beds, into the, the song of the meadowlark. That's where our love is meant to fall, not just to have our gaze continuously circulating around adequacy. And that, again, I don't say that with any judgment because I totally understand why we do that. When belonging is so fractured in a collective, like it has been because of our flag of individualism, belonging has been so fractured that our sense of security around belonging becomes so tenuous that we're always watching the next step we take. Because, you know, like in traditional cultures, it was really, again, not idealizing them, but from my studies, it was the job of the village to impress into the body of every child that they were somebody worthy of welcome and that they were needed and, and, and blessed. We've changed that 180 degrees around where it's my job to convince you that I'm somebody worthy of being welcomed into the community, even tenuously. And so we exert much of our attention for the remainder of our lifetimes, sometimes until we die, self-focused. Am I inside or outside? I mean, you think about how much anxiety we carry around whether or not we belong or don't belong, how, whether we're in or we're out. Why are we such a culture so obsessed with the cult of specialness? You know, that's because we, we are so uncertain about whether or not we belong. And that causes, again, the gaze becomes self-obsessional and we lose the beauty of the world. Soul has become so interior that the soul of the world has been forgotten. And then you can treat the world as commodity at that point. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because what you're saying there, you can treat the soul of the world or we can treat the world as a commodity. And in many ways we do. And we, we have, in some ways, commodified one another, you know, commodified ourselves, commodified our attention. And I think that's the part that many people struggle with. You know, I've, I've worked with a lot of I mean, there's many parts that, that people struggle with, but I, <laughs> but I think that's that part of the challenge that people are, are connecting with when using social media, when online, when, you know, watching the news, when interacting with some of the problems and challenges that we face is often that they feel a sense of, of helplessness in being able to even contribute to the change of where they see the ship heading. And I, I don't necessarily have a question outside of, just opening this space for you to maybe speak to that. We have no idea where the ship is heading. We are entering what I call the long dark. Well, there's many things I want to speak to here. The long dark is a period that's absolutely necessary for us to go through. Dark, I use the term dark, not in a negative sense, but in a sense of descent. We're in a time of decline, a time that's taking us into the underworld where certain things can only happen in darkness, like roots can only really develop in darkness. Everything in the green world that we look at is because of what's going on in darkness. Our heartbeat right now is in utter darkness. We were conceived in utter darkness in the womb of our mothers. 
So there's certain things that can only happen in darkness. And in the old alchemical tradition, uh, the negredo, the blackening, was a time of dissolution when things were falling apart. Tell me this is not a time of falling apart. And things, soul worker or the process of change begins in the dark, in the time of dissolution and decay. This is not a time of ascension. And it is not a time of knowing. One of the hardest things we're going to have to go through right now is, is not having answers to questions we don't, we don't even know to ask. There's, a, there's an Inuit phrase called kartsaluni. And kartsaluni means sitting together quietly in the dark, waiting for something to occur. Now, we are a can-do culture. When something happens, we want to fix it right away. We want to have the response. We want to have the response time very short and quick. But the reality is we have no idea. And so we're going to be entering into a, a long time darkness, the long dark. I'm not talking about years or even decades. I'm talking generations. We don't know how many generations it might take for us to get to the other side, if we can get to the other side of this crisis. There's no guarantee. But I like the process of not knowing more than just statistics and data. That can be quite depressing. But we're entering into this great unknown. And that invites imagination and invites a different quality of consciousness. I forget the first part of your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just kind of opened it up. I just posed a query and, and hoped that you would speak to it. I, I think you did quite an apt job of doing that. And, you know, I mean, again, I'll, I'll quote the, the grandfather, Jung. You know, he, in the Red Book, he talked about a dream where he met the archetype of his devil. and yeah, I'll never forget. I was I was like laying in bed reading reading it, which is you know really light nighttime reading, of course, reading Jung before bed. And he talked about meeting the devil, and I can't remember exactly word for word, but he basically advocates for communicating, you know, with your devil when you enter into the Negrito. When because he you know he wrote an entire book about alchemy and psychology, but he, he basically said when you have a chance to meet your devil, do so in all earnesty. He is your devil after all. He goes through the dream and his entire interaction. I feel like in some ways we're, you know, we're entering into this unknown space that you're talking about and, and the, the sort of collective unconscious is coming out into our society and culture. And in many ways, we're being faced with those parts of us that we don't like, that we don't want to experience. Why is it that we have such a aversion to the unknown? Like, I, I feel like sometimes part of, large part of my job is just supporting people in facing the unknown, being okay with the unknown, accepting not knowing. What does that come from? Is that just a part of human nature? Is it something that we've developed within our culture? Like, can, you, can you speak to that? I think it is part of our nature, but I think it's become exacerbated by, again, being asked to face the unknown in an intolerable circumstance, which is in, in isolation. We would use to, and we can go back to Cartsimoni, sitting together quietly in the dark. We don't sit together. So I'm, I'm being asked to face the darkness alone. I remember the first part of your question. It has something to do with people feel ineffective when thinking about facing the enormity of what's going on. Well, that, that's another part of that. Thinking about facing climate catastrophe or cultural collapse by myself? Forget about it. But if I can begin to remember that I am part of a cohesive body 
and collectively we are responding to what's going on, then I begin to feel a little bit more empowered, a little bit more possible that this isn't all on my shoulders. It's on the shoulders of millions, hopefully billions, of people who are concerned about our future. And that collectively, the imagination of the communal, of the species, you know, if we could sit long enough in the dark, quietly waiting for something to occur, we might get some some guidance about how to restore our primal relationship to the planet. I mean, one of Jung's phrases is that we are in the trouble we're in because we have, we have neglected the instincts, the age-old unforgotten wisdom that lies at the core of the psyche, the unforgotten wisdom. So there's some deep archaic part of the psyche that remembers its primal relationship to place and to planet. And I think under this critical time, this is a time that, that memory is being stirred. But as far as dealing with uncertainty, you know, it's scary. It's very scary to have to face it in isolation. It's much more possible when we can gather in circle and begin to speak about uncertainty. All what uncertainty is indicating is that we have gone as far as the mind can decipher, and we're now living in mystery. And to be able to enter mystery, Garcia Lorca said, only mystery enables us to live. So we're living more into mystery now than into the familiar. And that's precisely where we're heading. The moment you leave the daylight world, the moment you enter the negredo, into the blackness, the daylight sight ends. And now you're required to develop a second sight, a sight that can see in the underworld, that relies less on reason and more on intuition, more on heart knowledge. A deeper perceptual field is required of us now. Thank you for that. Thank you. You talked about us living in a grief-phobic culture, and I would love to just hear you define some of the territory or parameters of that, what it looks like, and how we begin to traverse that. What the grief-phobic culture looks like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look around. <laughs> <laughs> open, open on Facebook, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we do not know how to deal with death, with endings, with loss, with failure. I talk about in my book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, The Five Gates of Grief. And really, the only gate that we ever acknowledge collectively is when someone close to us dies or something close to us dies or something ends, like a marriage ends or we lose a home. We can say to someone, you know, I'm so sorry for your loss and my condolences. We can acknowledge that a little bit. But all the other gates of grief are basically unacknowledged. The, the, the losses that happen to our own integrity, when we lose whole portions of our being through shame, through trauma, through we, so we lose our sense of being able to ask for what we need, or we can't show our tears, or we can't show our exuberance, or our joy, or our sensuality. We lose whole portions of our being. That's a whole gate of loss that we do not acknowledge. The sorrows of the world, we barely acknowledge collectively. The fourth gate is what I call what we expected and did not receive. You know, our, we are wired to expect the same thing our deep-time ancestors experienced, which was life within a contained field of village or tribal culture. We expected 40 pairs of eyes greeting us every day, wondering what we dreamt about last night. We expected to share meals and rituals of grief and gratitude, and we expected to go through some kind of initiatory process we expected to be under the stars, listening to the old ones tell the stories at night. 
almost none of that manifested. That's a deep source of grief that we don't even know how to name, but it feels like a chronic emptiness at the core of our being, which we typically blame ourselves for. What did I do wrong to feel so empty inside? Well, what if that emptiness isn't somehow a flaw in your character, but an absence where a living culture was meant to be flourishing and nourishing you, and then you in turn helping to, the culture to flourish? And then the last gate I talk about is ancestral grief the rupture in our ancestral lines that we all come from intact and initiated ancestral indigenous communities, but most all of us, particularly in white Western culture, that got severed. And the relationship to place, to language, to ritual, to cosmology, again, something that disappeared. And also in that ancestral line is what happened when our ancestors arrived here with to the native cultures, to the importation of slavery. That Ancestral grief is so thick that the more I work with grief, the more I think that most all of our grief is multi-generational. It's not even mine. I mean, I have my own personal losses, my own personal experiences, but so much of the grief that I carry in my body and you carry in your body began, as Rumi said, in some other tavern. It began generations, thousands of years ago, and has now continued on. And now they're talking about the transgenerational transmission of trauma, right? They're talking about this, the new epigenetics of trauma and how it transfers down the lineage. Now, that's, that's difficult news to hear. The other side of that coin, though, that I think is hopeful is that it's also the transgenerational transmission of, of courage, of affection, of love, of creativity, of imagination. Somehow you and I are sitting here having this conversation because that lineage did not get broken. So something endured, not just trauma and grief, but also something that allowed us to have this moment in this flesh and in this bone and this body. But collectively, again, you go back to individualism and you go back into the archetypal mode of perception. The dominant archetype in this culture is the heroic archetype. And the hero needs no one. The hero is always successful. The hero shows no vulnerability, has no need rises above everything. We're always climbing. I mean, look how anxious we get collectively when the, when the stock market goes down. I mean, we have entire industries devoted to things, making sure that they keep going up. You know, the whole you know, erectile dysfunction industry. We hate it when things go down. It's a, somehow a personal failure when things go down. But that's the time we're in right now. We're in a time of descent. And that is soul time. Soul has all to do with descent. And with going down. And that is holy ground to the soul. Yeah, thank you for that. It's what I took out of that is the importance of allowing ourselves individually, collectively, communally to enter into those spaces of grief when they arise and to actually get curious in some ways about the grief that we might be carrying that we haven't acknowledged. And the, the, the fundamental and almost undeniable importance of that, you know, I think the other thing that stood out to me as you were talking was, you know, I, I read somewhere that 25% of the, of the United States, $27 trillion has been printed off within the last five years. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, what a, what a great symbol of exactly what you're talking about, right? Prop it up, prop it up, let it keep going up, keep going up, ascension, ascension we seem to be unable to allow ourselves to enter into these spaces of decomposition. So as, as somebody that has 
facilitated this, you know, what does that group work look like? What does that grief work look like when you are uh, guiding people through that space? Obviously, you know, you don't need to give us all the all the details, but what could somebody expect from entering into that space? Well, let me first just say a couple thoughts. Please. I'm very concerned about our psychological language that is so conditioned around growth and development and self-improvement. I think it's actually an act of violence at times. I think we are so obsessed with self-improvement because our anxiety around belonging is so pervasive that we think that unless I make myself better, I won't be let into the circle. And so it's often people come into my office, it's often predicated on a a degree of self-hatred. I've got to get rid of these parts of me. I've got to improve these parts of me. Otherwise, I'll never be led inside. And I'll always be an outsider. I'll always be in exile. And my first piece of work with them is to begin to stop the war and stop the obsession with growth. Soul doesn't give a shit about your growth. What it wants is full encounter. It doesn't care about failure or defeat or inadequacy. That's part of being in this body. And the soul is fine with that. What it, what it doesn't like is a truncated experience of participation. It doesn't want you to accept only success and neglect and deny and push away failure. Failure, Ruby says, is the key to the, is the, key to the kingdom of heaven. So we need failures. There, there, are, there are ways that bring us into humility and into connection with other human beings. It isn't through my strength that I get intimate with my friends. It's through my vulnerability. It's through my weakness. It's through my, my frailties. So when we enter into a grief ritual space, it's an invitational field to bring in all of these parts of us, the outcast, others in ourselves, the losses, the defeats, the uh, suicides, the, the alcoholism. The, it's, a, it's a space to bring in what is culturally unacknowledged. And in that field, we build a ritual container strong enough, fierce enough, loving enough for people to side by side when the ritual comes to collectively weep their, their tears. And what we, what we acknowledge from the very beginning of our time together over our three days together is to break the fiction of private suffering. People will share a thread of grief. Then I'll ask, did anybody hear a thread of grief they couldn't relate to? And of course, they, they couldn't. They may not have had that experience. They may not have had a son or a daughter who overdosed or a brother or husband who committed suicide, but they could relate to it because we all know loss. And so that we change the context from my private grief, my private suffering to our communal cup of loss. And our work over the weekend is to empty somewhat, a little bit of that communal cup of loss. We're not going to do it all in one weekend. This is not an American workshop where one time and you're done. No, many, many visitations to the grief shrine. That's why in traditional cultures, the sanity of repetition, soulful repetition of ritual is, is what keeps psyche healthy. It's what keeps psyche current. The value of grief work is that it gets us current. Most of us are chewing bones that are so old that we rarely even get to turn around and face our current life. Or to be in the current of electricity, being alive, we're to be in the current of the flow of life. We're almost chronically facing our histories and the histories of those who came before us. We rarely get to be here. And that's what I love about grief work is that it 
slowly gets me into the current moment. I couldn't help but, you know, think about the culture within personal development, you know, within the self-help industry that is quite pervasive around, I, yeah, I usually talk about the letting go of the need for the, the silver bullet, the golden gun, you know, and, um, and how that pursuit in many ways is the thing that's blocking us from being able to open to the falling apart that's required, you know? Sure. We've become, we've become in some ways fall, falling apart averse and we, and we don't want to enter that into that space. But in, in my own life, I mean, you know, I, I resisted that for such a long time for years and years and years until it sort of forced itself upon me, you know, life. Yeah. Life has a way of doing that, right? It's like yes, the more you resist yes. it, it builds up and then, you know, you find yourself at rock bottom eventually because life's like, well, I, you know, I tried to tell you before. I'm not too sure it was if it was you or, or someone else that I heard talk about it. Idea that we are ancestors to someone else, and we will be ancestors to to generations to come. And I want to get your take on what does it look like for us, based on this moment, based on the times that we're in, for us to be. I almost said effective ancestors, but to be. Okay. Yeah, to be generative ancestors that can, you know, nourish the generations to come. And I think it's, it's a big... No, no, that, it's more like the flood that comes in. Yeah, right. <laughs> You're like, there's a there's a book and a movie that I have that I just want to put out there, yeah. I think it probably we could thread our whole conversation into this. To become an ancestor or an elder who is an ancestor in training means to become somebody fluent in the language of grief. You know, I talked about the apprenticeship with sorrow. In the old language of apprenticing, you undertook a prolonged study of a craft, whether that's stonework or masonry or carpentry or weaving. And you studied it for years, sometimes a decade or two. And at the end of that long devotional practice, you would be declared a master, a master craftsman. In the apprenticeship with sorrow, that long study, the long period of working with grief and learning its contours and its textures and its style and its rhythm and its language doesn't lead to mastery. The long apprenticeship leads to elderhood. And an elder is someone who does not turn away from the sorrows of the world. And in fact, looks into the eyes, particularly of the young ones, to see whether that sorrow is coming through those eyes. And they recognize that and they speak to that. And they say, I see you, and I see what you're carrying, and they'll want you to tell me. An elder is someone who is willing to coax the grief of the young ones out into the world. So a lot of the grief that the young ones are carrying have no place to be deposited, no place to be heard. So it often leads to suicide or to, you know, some other form of coping. So what I'm asking for is for our, ourselves to become fluent enough in those skill sets. Because grief is not just an emotion, it's also a core human faculty. It's a core skill. And to become skillful in that really is what preserves the, the world, preserves the culture. I'll tell you one quick story from, um, for many years, 17 years or so, I led a program called Men of Spirit, which was a men's initiation project that took men through a year-long process of ripening them and to become participants in the care of the, of the community. 
at the end of 17 years, I needed to pass it on. So I did the training for several years. And one of the last things we did was a ritual. And I asked um, the men who were in training with me, I said, we're going to drum for a while. And what I want you to do is I want you to dance a Thanksgiving dance to the ancestors. And there were some moans and groans about that. because Some of them did not have very positive ancestors. I said, well, at least start with the gratitude that you have this body. And no matter how difficult, fraught the relationship was with your direct ancestors, they gave you this body. Dance for that. I said, but at some point, the drumming is going to stop. When the drumming stops, I want you to lay down on the ground and await further instructions. Now, a little preamble to this story. When we began the Men of Spirit project, we said this is a 200-year project. We know, without a shadow of a doubt, that we will not see the fruition of this dream in our lifetimes. But we are planting that seed so that maybe in 200 years, the young boys standing on this mountain or maybe in other mountains will know their belonging from the very beginning. They will know a return to a living village. They will find salmon swimming in the streams again. And the world will still be beautiful. That is what we do while we're doing this project. We're starting the stream sequence. So we started the drumming and the men started to do the dance. And over 40, 45 minutes, the dancing got quite animated. It was beautiful. We stopped the drumming. The men laid down on the ground. And I walked out amongst them. I said, now... Imagine that our dream has come true. We are 200 years in the future, and the young ones are up on the surface of this land. We are the ancestors. Now, we are the ones deep in the ground. Our names have been utterly forgotten, but they are now depending upon our prayers. Send them an arrow of love. Send them your commitment that you will stand with them, that you will bless them, that you will hold them, that you will take them wherever they have to go. They will not be alone. Bless them, bless them, bless them. And the men began, men began shooting these arrows of love. We could feel that the young ones were up there. And we were the ones deep underground. We were the ones holding this up. And it was all dependent upon whether or not we could do this with full devotion. And we did this for hours. The drumming stopped and the arrows kept flying. They didn't want to stop blessing these young men standing mountaintop. And when we ended, we looked at each other, we recognized we were, we did a time travel, we were the ancestors. We were no longer in this world. We were under the world, and we were throughout the world, and we were doing our jobs. That's what's required of us right now, to bless those who are looking to us. Generate, even if generations haven't taken shape yet, we have to bless them by our commitment to the future. But we, there won't be one unless our devotion falls into the world. And we send arrows of love over and over again to the generations that might just still come. That felt, I mean, it just felt nourishing to hear and feel. And yeah, I don't have many words for that. So I feel like I'll let that be. Thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for this conversation and for your openness and your wisdom and, and just what you brought to this. So I'm going to hand things over to the questions that people have, have put in. So the first question is, can you have an accidental initiation at a young age? Example, having trauma, family dynamics that caused the child to grow up too soon. 
So maybe just speaking a little bit more about that uncontained, sorry, initiation. Yeah, absolutely. Trauma is one of those initiatory events that happens to too many of us. There's acute trauma, there's violence, there's, uh, there's you know, an experience of rupture. And then there's what I call slow trauma, neglect, non-responsiveness, non-malattunement to our emotional and soulful needs. The problem with it's what I call, in a, in a, it's called premature initiation, is that we are thrown into an initiatory process prior to our psyches being able to make any tangible sense of it. So we spend a lot of our time living out of, strategy, kind of develop a strategic life at that point. How do we cope with a world that has been upended and we have a kind of a core belief structure that the world is not safe? So, so we were kind of caught in this tension between the soul's yearning for participation and the wounded child's desire for safety and protection in survival. And we live in this tension between these two realities much of our lifetime. And for the most part, this one wins. Not for no other reason than we have to survive. Part of the work is learning how to separate from the wound. Jung said we can't heal what we can't separate from. So these premature initiations establish fragmented portions in the psyche, what Jung would call a complex. And the complexes don't just dissolve on their own. They require our capacity to separate from them and then to turn toward them with the qualities of attention and affection and to begin to understand what's contained inside the complex, what's, what's contained inside of this premature initiatory event. The complex is a nodule of, of consciousness that operates autonomously from waking consciousness, but that continues to disrupt our waking consciousness, interferes with it in ways that slowly, if we're lucky, we begin to see that it's an, it's an autonomous presence. And then it's then our job to begin the process of dissolving, of discharging the complex and transferring pain and suffering in that, that occurred early on into the adult body. I did a ritual with a group down in, in Southern California many years ago. We were working with this very thought, this very thing that your, your question's bringing up. Thank you for the question, by the way. And we put five large, heavy stones at the base of this gigantic oak tree. And the ritual is very simple. To walk down, we drummed and sang, and an individual would walk down to the stone and pick it up and imagine transferring the grief, the pain, the fear, the shame, the outrage from the child's body into the adult body. Very simple ritual, but it was exceedingly profound. You could see men, and they all, and they all, many of them said, I could feel the emotional thread of that moving into my body. As an adult, I can process those feelings. As an adult, I can digest grief and outrage and shame and loneliness and fear, but that child could not. We have to begin to relieve the child of duty and transfer them the emotional burden into the adult and then digest that. And then this part can begin to slowly open up again and participate back in the world. I hope that helped a little bit. Yeah, no, I mean, that was, that was a beautiful articulation of it. Thank you so much for that. It's very interesting because the way in which you described it is very clear. And yet I can imagine myself, you know, 
14, 15 years ago, hearing that being like, well, where, where do I start? You know, where do I begin? But I think what I also hear you say embedded into that is in a group, you know, putting yourself in a situation. I mean, I've done so much group work now that it's, it's, it uh, can't help but be such an advocate for it and to invite people in that space over and over and over again. So just wanted to float that out there for anybody that hears that and it's like, well, where do I, you know, where do I start is to go find grief circle, go find a group that you can, that you can be a part of. And ask, ask yourself, where do I get triggered? Where do I, where do I move from an adult consciousness into a child consciousness? That can happen instantaneously. That'll give you a clue. And in the back of my, the wild edge of sorrow, I did a, I do a whole section on working with this part of our psychological experience around complexes. Now, how do you begin the process of separation and then metabolizing the, uh, the material? Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. How do we know when we've come to a deep acceptance of our death, whether eventual literal death or metaphysically through initiation? I imagine purpose becomes far more about us versus me centered. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not there. I'm not, I, I, I still struggle with the idea of dying. I think most of us do. I think what initiations do is take us to that threshold where we recognize that we are in, we're all terminal. And uh, how we approach that and how we engage that really determines the quality of our, our presence in the world. In a sense, one of the ways you can imagine it is if we're always entangled with our past and are always trying to fix our life, we'll end up backing into our grave. Part of our job is to make the pivot and face our death and face the inevitability of becoming an ancestor and see that as a, as a kind of a sacred calling, not something to avoid, but that's something that because of the heat of that, has the potential for also ripening us and, and deepening our own capacity to, to not turn away from the collective deaths that are happening around us, the extinction issues, the collapse of culture and so forth. Hmm. So I don't know I conundrum to sit with. How will I accept that? I don't know. I don't know. But I'm willing to continue seeing the inevitability of my, of my demise, that I will not wake up one morning. And how will I want to live, part of how I wake up every morning or as often as I can, my little micro meditation is, I'm one day closer to my death. How will I live this day? How will I greet those I encounter? How will I bring soul into my relationships and into my life? I do not want to waste this day. That's the practice I try to live with is I'm one day closer to my death, which is utterly true. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm way past adding days to my life. I'm definitely on that, you know, the short end of that stick. And as many people say, you know, in spiritual traditions, death, keep death close by, keep it as an ally, reminding you, reminding you. What was Buddha's phrase? The trouble is, dear friend, you think you have time. It's a very short ride. How the hell did I get to be 65 years old? This can't be right. But this is where I am. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate the perspective on that one. I, I spent a few months at one point where I started to engage in this question myself. Did it in a very sort of rational way in, in, some, in some means, but I calculated out how many days I had left 
if I was to live to a certain age. And I, I can't remember exactly what it was. It was something like you know, 14, 14,800 days. And I just started ticking them off. You know, every day I would wake up, it was like 14,380, 14,379, 14,378. And it was such an interesting experience to have because up until that moment, I had lived kind of in a reckless way as if the end wasn't coming, you know, as if that, that wasn't impending. And it gave me a very, give me a very different sort of sense of that face, that turnaround that you're talking about. So I appreciate your perspective. How do you approach the shame that comes around grief and the cathartic nature of the primal emotions like anger and frustration? That's a very important question. You know, whenever an emotion is basically silenced or sequestered in the culture or in the family, they will engender shame just by the very fact of omission. You are taught very quickly that what is happening here is somehow inappropriate or wrong. Uh, so shame can accrue itself or treat itself to anything, a need, an emotion, an expression, a body. So shame requires three things to begin to move. So the shame that comes around your grief, it can oftentimes convey a message that somehow it's, it's wrong or it's bad or it's worthless. If you can migrate that over into the place of saying, my grief has been wounded by shame, by commentary, by, by exclusion. If we can move from worthless to wounded, we can move from contempt to compassion. That's the second move. Whatever we see as worthless, we, we actually typically hold that place with contempt. And we participate and we kind of maintain the ongoing shame of that place, like somehow it is not worthy of belonging in the circle. If I can move it into the field of compassion, I can begin to warm it. That's again an old alchemical idea that whatever we are working with, we want to keep it warm. Shame chills things immediately. It turns, turns our, our grief and it hardens it and congeals it so it doesn't have the flexibility and fluidity of movement. To bring compassion to that place of shame begins to soften it begins to open the heart back up to the suffering that's in that shame. And it begins to make the grief warm again, which allows the third movement, which is from silence to sharing. So whatever I hold as worthless and with, with contempt, I will not speak aloud. But if I can see it as wounded, hold it with compassion, I can begin to share it. It's, a, it's kind of a slow migratory process. The shame is also probably being held by a very young part of us who is told and taught that your tears are, are not welcome here. Your tears are inappropriate. Your grief is wrong. And if we begin with the separation, one of the core parts of the apprenticeship is to move grief from the child's hands into the adult's hands. And the adult has the capacity, once again, to reclaim the, the sacredness of sorrow. As Oscar Wilde said, where there is sorrow, there is holy ground. So we need to reclaim or kind of redeem the holiness of our sorrow. Shame tells us that it's wrong, it's unwelcome, that it's bad. So our job is to begin to resacrament, to, to, to resacralize our grief. And anybody who's come to any grief ritual, no matter how much shame they've carried in the room, by the time they leave, they have a different story about it. They begin to see that it's part of the commons of the soul. Every single human being, every eye you greet on the street knows sorrow. 
knows grief. You are not different than anybody else. And once we begin to see that you're getting the communal cup, it helps to lessen the shame we carry. So I want you to hear that your shame is not yours. It is cultural. It is familial. You can say those things simultaneously. Families are cultural. They are, they are conditioned by culture. But in that heroic culture where you're never supposed to show a weak step or a tear, the shame does not belong to you. That's part of your grief, is that you were not allowed to be a full human being and to have your own tears. So I want, want to say and extend to you a welcome to your grief and to your tears. They are holy. I like that last piece. The tears are holy. I think we have time for another question. And this one says, how do you suggest we welcome in the grief of others for their healing while simultaneously just beginning to meet and welcome in the darkness of our own grief? Yeah, thank you. They are not separate. Tendencies oftentimes turn and make other people's griefs more important than ours. We're taught to somehow trivialize our own sorrows. So that, that is a danger to not kind of, in the old language of codependency, fix somebody else's grief or tend to them first, but see them as entangled. What they're grieving is, is very much entangled with your own grief. And sharing your sorrows is actually an invitation for others to care for you. That's part of the ecology of the sacred. That's part of the beauty of when we do grief rituals is that when you go down to the grief shrine, you never go down alone. You're always accompanied by somebody. Somebody's always got your back. In other words, you're not grieving alone. You're always being witnessed, not interfered with, but witnessed. And then you're escorted gracefully back to the village and welcomed and thanked for your grief. I mean, how many of us have ever been thanked for our grief? Well, probably none of us. So the work is to not make it an either or, but a, in the Buddhist terms, co they co-arise, they coexist. Your grief is an invitation for somebody else to care for you. Their grief is an invitation for you to help hold them. Don't deny your own grief by any stretch of the imagination. That your tears are essential. You have to be in the equation. Otherwise, we begin this distorted story that I don't matter. And then the very consequence of silencing my grief, I disappear. So your full revelation, your full participation requires your, your willingness to show your grief as well. How wonderful. I'm, I'm curious if you can maybe just take that, you know, I think in, in relationships specifically, I think a lot of the, the men that I've worked with over the years talk about holding space, being able to receive their partner's grief, especially about past abuses, past, you know, experiences that they've had at the hands of a family member, at the hands of a former partner. And how, how does one show up in that space where, you know, our own our own sadness, our own grief, our own experience can be present, be brought forward by another's. So I'm wondering if you can just speak to that type of a situation. If I understand you, I, you know, there has to be mutuality in any, any relationship. When I'm working with couples or in my own couple, I'm always talking about the third bond, which is the soul of the relationship. It's, the, it's, the, it's the, what's happening between us. That becomes actually... As important as either one of us individually. There's three of us in my household. In your case, four. So that, that third requires my willingness to become vulnerable. If I'm simply the stoic tender of my partner's grief, and I don't become vulnerable myself, I'm withholding what the third body requires. Given that, there's a tendency 
in a lot of the men I've worked with to project that emotional need onto the other, to the woman, if it's a heterosexual relationship, and transform her into the mother. So it's very important that that man has other men he can bring his grief to as well. So that it's not a place of rescue, it's not a place of, you know, caretaking. But the difference between being taken care of and being cared for is quite different. So when I can share my grief with my wife, she's right there with me, not taking care of me, but caring for me. And I know it's a fully permissible space, and that feeds the third body. It feeds the love between us. Mutual revelation, not one or the other, but mutual revelation. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. I appreciate that. I think we'll, we'll pause there in the hopes and knowing that, that maybe one day we can do this again and perhaps dive more into the third body and relationships. And because that is, that's wonderful. Or maybe I'll just put you on camera with my wife and the two of you can, <laughs> can jam on that. Cause I mean, hell, I'd love to listen to that conversation. So well, listen, Francis, thank you so much for everything that you do. You mentioned a few of your your books. Where can people go to just learn more about you? Maybe check out one of your books or one of your programs. FrancisWeller.net is the best place uh, to get information on offerings, audio programs, or my writings, books you can get any place, bookstore, your local bookstore, best place to go. And... Connor, thank you for a wonderful conversation. Excellent questions. And thank you for all your the participants for your excellent questions as well. And I feel, as you can see, very spiritually employed tonight. Mm. <laughs> I love that. All right. Thank you so much, Francis. And thank you for everyone that tuned in today's conversation. Really appreciate all of you. And that's it for all. That's it, that's it for today. So thank you so much. Be well. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.